That really is the craving inside so many of us, isn't it? Revival, revival in our hearts, revival in our church. And that's a very appropriate prayer for people to be praying, for the church to be praying for revival. Um, just a little word about that revival. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Some of us, have, when you say the word revival, some of us have a picture that comes to mind. Some of us like think of like a 1920s style camp meeting or something like that. You know, some of us think about something that happened in your own life when you experienced revival. But revival, really, throughout the scriptures, it's not really about the repentance of sinners and pagans and that kind of thing. A lot of times that's what we think of when we think of revival. But really, it's the repentance and reviving of God's people right? It comes from the Latin word to live again, to revive, to live again. So it's, it's for the people of God, the people who have tasted of, of that, that new life, but they need to be revived. They need to be woken back up, reawakened. And, and then what's great is the fruit of revival, you see, is evangelism and the salvation of the lost. So that's a beautiful thing that follows. But revival of the saints has to come first. Uh, and I could just see it, you probably see it on, you know, social media or just talking with your friends and neighbors. That's such a cry of our country right now. Revival, and we see examples of it breaking out. And it's examples in, among believers, just these beautiful, pure expressions of believers, their hearts just breaking back to God. And I, I was reminded, like in the Old Testament stories, what would happen is the prophets would come and call Israel to like communal repentance and a recommitment of their vows. In, in the book of Acts, we have some really great scenes, such as the, the incredible scene of the disciples preaching on Pentecost. And we love that one, thousands of people coming to know Jesus. But I would argue that that's not when revival happened. Revival, in that case, actually occurs about three weeks prior to that on a quiet little beach when Jesus is sitting in the sand, he's newly risen from the dead, and he calls Peter over to him. The same Peter who had betrayed him, the same Peter who had just completely obliterated his whole identity and his ministry because he ran away in fear while Jesus was being crucified. Jesus sits him down, and so lovingly, he cooks him some fish, and he forgives him, and he restores him to his calling. G Peter coming alive is a beautiful picture of revival right then and there. And what came out of that? Pentecost. Beautiful, right? Right? So revival begins with revelation. We talked about that in week one. Week one the, it's that wake-up call, that conviction of the Holy Spirit. It snaps us out of the rut of our self-delusion, our discouragement maybe. Out of that, how do we respond? We respond with repentance and that's the restoration of our identity like Jesus did with Peter. And only then can we do what he does. Only then can we, we be what he's called us to be. And revival isn't about, let me say this, revival isn't about, I know most of you, uh, many of you are mature Christians, so you know this, but maybe for some of our newer Christians, let me caution you on something. Uh, revival isn't just about uh, feeling those great goosebumps at a, at a loud, exciting worship conference, at a concert that you go to, right? That's not technically revival, because revival is not the same as an emotional response. A lot of times we just confuse, I had a really a big emotional response. Boy, what revival that was, you know? That's, I mean, it's great. Your, part, your emotions are part of you, but it's, it's, there's something. Sometimes that emotional response might be evidence of something happening, 
something in the Spirit happening. But it's not about that. It's not, it's not even about getting really amped up about life all of a sudden, right? Revival is about being brought back to life. In the pure sense of the word, it's about being brought back to life. And, and um, yes, it can come in a whirlwind of like spiritual expressions and manifestations and excitement, and that's awesome. But it can also come, and I would argue maybe most often comes in a very quiet, still, small moment when the Holy Spirit re-flickers that dying flame inside of you and brings it back to life, brings you back to life. Yesterday, I got to go up and visit the guys who were having the, their camping retreat, and uh, I got to listen to a couple of great, great uh, sh- sharing little sermons by um, Jeremy and Doug. Doug taught on the fire, that fire inside of you. It was such a beautiful picture of revival. God lighting that fire and sustaining that fire, right? So the revival isn't like, well, you know, I, I need another dose of goosebumps every six months. No, I mean, when you're experiencing revival, God keeps that fire just burning. It burns bright and it burns steady. That's a beautiful thing. And Jeremy talked so, so wonderfully about how God wants to call, he calls uh, our guys to holiness. He calls them to be different, actually look different from the world. Just, just a beautiful thing. And I'm so glad uh, many of, I know many of our guys are still there uh, this morning, um, but such a great picture of revival. Um, speaking of which, I want to remind you too about the prayer. Uh, I, I've been calling us to pray, um, inviting us all to pray as a community during this Lenten season. Um, and it's just the prayer for God to revive in our community this commitment to love one another, this commitment to, to walk in unity, to revive in us a passion to share the gospel with other people. I just invite you to just include this in your daily communion, your daily prayers with the Lord. And this is on the website. If you want to go to the website, check it out. It's right there on the homepage. Um, you can type it into your phone or however you want to do that. But I urge you to make this part of your, your daily communion with God. Okay, today we're continuing our series, Road to Resurrection. And we're going through some of the themes of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Um, You know, there's four gospels, biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is is a fascinating one. Maybe next week we'll talk about some of the things that make Mark uh, very unique. I, I love Mark. But we're taking a fresh look at what Jesus said and what he did. Because how many of you know often what the Bible says about following Jesus the way it talks about following Jesus is different than how a lot of Christians talk about following Jesus, right? And so we want to we want to be made aware of that. And so we want to kind of go back to the source material and remind ourselves here what exactly we're saying yes to when we when Jesus says follow me. What are we saying yes to? And who is it? Whose footsteps are we actually walking in? Uh, we want to know who this Jesus really is. Um, what's fascinating is in the book of Mark, and Mark points this out. Uh, in a way that even so much more clearly than some of the other gospel writers, is there is a ton of misunderstanding in Jesus' day all around him of who he is. There's a lot of people who really don't understand him. Even his family doesn't quite get it right. Check out Mark chapter 3. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again the crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. How many of you ever been at Thanksgiving dinner and you've had similar comments levied at you by a family member? Right? 
maybe some of your opinions. You throw out one of those conspiracy theories or two, and people look at you like, oh, bless your heart, right? That's the way we say it in the South. They are out of their mind, right? And it's fascinating. The phrase here, take charge of him, it, it literally means to grab him out of his environment. They were there to, like, kidnap him because they thought he was out of his mind, his own mother and brothers. So his family's confused. We find out the teachers of the law, they're pretty confused. It says, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, uh, this man is possessed by the prince of demons. That's the only re- reason he's able to drive out demons. So there's a little bit of confusion on the part of the religious leaders. We find out his, his hometown doesn't know what to make of him either. In March 6, it says, Jesus left and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. So he's in his hometown little church, right? He came back home. And when you he, when he heard him, you were, people were just amazed. Where did this man get these things? They were, like, they were asking, what's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's doing, he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this... Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are, are, are the sisters with it, right? They, and they says they took offense. They took offense. You ever go to a high school reunion like 20 years later and you're thinking like, yeah, I'm going to show these guys. I have arrived. Look, look at all I've, I've accomplished. And you show up and they're like, yeah, now we remember you, Right? <laughs> You're that kid sat in the corner drawing dragons on his folder and wearing socks with sandals or something. I don't know. We know you. They're not impressed. They're like, aren't you Mary's son? So there's the crowds. They're a bit confused. Jesus, he questions his own disciples in chapter 8. It says he and his disciples went with, uh, to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And this is what the crowds are saying. Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And, and very famously, Jesus says, well, who do you guys, you know, who do you all say that I am? You're, you're the one hanging out with me. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And, but then later when Jesus announces that he has to suffer and die, remember, Peter begins to rebuke him, <laughs> right? That's, that's some chutzpah. And, and Jesus very, very gently right? He looks at Peter. He says, get, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, man. So, can we agree just through this little short montage of, of scenes here? There's some uh, confusion. His family thinks he's out of his mind. Uh, the teachers of the law think he's the prince of demons. Um, his hometown takes offense at him. The crowd thinks he's like an old dead prophet come back to life. And his disciples, even when they get it right, they get it wrong. Uh, The identity of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark is always in question. And Mark points this out in a really beautiful way. Um, Except for one group. There's one group in Mark that always knows who Jesus is. One group gets it right. Look back in chapter 1. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. And he gives this exalted title to Jesus, the Holy One of God. It's fascinating, right? Demons have the best theology in the Gospels. They get it. 
it's bewildering. And like later in chapter 1, that evening after sunset, people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. I'm like, what is this town? My goodness, what's in the water there? And it says he cast out the demons, but it says that he wouldn't let them speak because they knew who he was. And Jesus is still keeping kind of a low profile, right? But later it says, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, what? You're the son of God. In chapter 5, we meet a guy who's got a legion. It's like thousands of demons inside of him. In chapter 5, he says, When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And again, it's that exalted title. It's an exalted title. It's, it's fascinating. The crowds are confused. Uh, the disciples don't get it. The hometown takes offense. His family thinks he's crazy. The teachers of the law think he's in league with the demons, and it's actually the demons who know who he is throughout the whole gospel. Isn't that interesting? So what does this tell us? There's something that uh, Christians have been confessing and, and reciting for more than 15 centuries. It's called the Apostles' Creed. Many of you recognize it. The Apostles' Creed. Um, dates back, famous statement of like core beliefs, it dates back to like the 6th or 7th century. These are pretty much have been decided by every church father who's ever lived in the last 2,000 years. Like this is the core stuff, pretty much what you got to buy into to call yourself 3rd century, what you got to buy to call, you know, call yourself a Christian. Like this is the, this is the bare minimum, the core thing. There's a lot of, you know, little details that every denomination disagrees on, but these are the essential beliefs you got to buy into to be part of the tribe the Christian tribe. And the phrase repeated throughout the Apostles' Creed is, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Now, and by the way, as far as creeds go, this is a pretty good one right here. I mean, I, I fully, fully buy into all this, uh, endorse the Apostles' Creed. Now, what Christians have done to that word, I believe, particularly here in the West, because uh, we're kind of in this, we're in the post-enlightenment uh, kind of civilization here, is we have turned that phrase, I believe, into a sort of internal mental agreement word, right? So that to say, I believe in the Apostles' Creed means essentially, yes, I intellectually agree with all those statements. But what's interesting is belief in the Bible isn't an intellectual word, it's, it has a component of that. I mean, certainly a component of that. But it's something far deeper and far richer. Uh, because the truth is, if good theology is all that saves you, then demons are saved. Am I right? Demons would look at the Apostles' Creed and go, yeah, I, I pretty much buy all that. That's all true. <laughs> right? They, they wouldn't argue with it. And so Americans, especially, I, could, I, I critique Americans because I'm an American. Um, we have turned sort of following Jesus into learning more information about Jesus, right? I don't know. That's not anything controversial. That's true. We, we'd have to admit that about ourselves. That's kind of what we think about as following Jesus. Someone says, I want to follow Christ. Well, you need to learn some more information about Jesus or, or joining the Jesus religion, right? Call yourself a Christian. Be, be a Christian. When Jesus' invitation was always to come and follow. Now, what does follow mean? Follow means imitate. What you see me doing, you do, right? 
But we think as long as we've got the right answers to the multiple choice tests, we're good. I know the right stuff, so I'm good. And, and James, in his letter to the church, boy, he says it really uh, pretty bluntly. He plays on this. He's rebuking this one con- congregation. And in chapter 2, he says, you believe that there's only one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder in response, right? So apparently, there is a huge gap between belief and faith, because even the demons believe. And and a large part of this American project of ours of, of following Jesus has turned out to be Let's, let's memorize, let's study, let's think the right things, let's all agree on the right things, and hallelujah for what it's worth, that matters, it's good, it's good to study it and know what's correct, but if that's all it is, what good is it, right? Because even the demons would look at that creed and be like, yeah, that's all true, can't argue with that. So Paul later, uh, he would say, if you have all knowledge and you don't have love, you have nothing. Do we believe that? We believe that. We believe it. We don't really believe it, though, right? Because we think as long as we're right, we're holy. So we believe it, but we don't believe it. We think as long as we're right, we're holy. As long as we think the right things, we believe the right things, we have the right opinions. I just want to kind of beat up on that idea of faith. And really, it's not me. It's not me critiquing this idea. It's the Bible. Scripture kind of beats up on this whole idea. Uh, The problem with the whole idea is the Bible. When you actually look and you see what it is that Jesus invites us into, it's not more knowledge or even like more mental certainty. It's a living faith, a living faith. So, billion-dollar question, obviously, is then, well, what does faith look like, Scott, right? Okay, let's go to chapter 2, ladies and gentlemen, because we have great examples here. Here we go, chapter 2 of Mark. All right. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. They, they go gathered in, they get gathered in such a large numbers, there wasn't any room left and not even outside the door, so he preached the word to them. Some men came uh, bringing a paralyzed man carried by four friends. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening on the roof. Now, guys, this is so awesome. So typically what you would have here in, in this day, um, an average house in Capernaum, and I've gotten to be there. It was so cool. Stand in Capernaum to this day. They have the ruins, and you can see the outline of the foundations of the homes back then, kind of outlined. And so you would see the way the homes are built, you'd have kind of like one room, and sometimes those rooms would have like a divider in the room to separate it into two rooms. And if it was a typical kind of middle-class Capernaum house or something like that, there'd be like stairs or a ladder outside the house to the roof, which would be an upper room. Now, it really wasn't a second story because it wasn't enclosed. It was just kind of like an open-air patio that they put on their flat roof. Really cool. And so what, what we think is happening here is that four guys show up. They're trucking their friend along who can't walk, and they can't get in the door. They can't get in to see Jesus. But so they don't have the patience to just wait their turn um, like, you know, nice people. So they go up a ladder outside the house to get on the little upstairs patio. And uh, I don't know, they start digging and scratching through, through the roof, through the mud, through the thatch, the sticks, they're, bring, you know, they're breaking them apart, pulling it back. And you got to picture this doesn't happen all at once, right? Because there's like layers here. So they're doing this. Meanwhile, um, 
you can imagine Jesus is in this room. There's probably, I don't know, 20, 30 people packed in this, packed in this room, and um, they're crammed in there, and there's probably like some bits of like straw and dirt like falling down in front of Jesus <laughs> while he's talking. And, you know, everybody's trying to ignore it and listen to Jesus, and just stuff keeps popping down. And he would have the owner of the house to, at his right hand, the place of honor, and suddenly, you know, a little beam of light pew, comes down through the, through the thatch roof, and the owner's probably muscling his way through the crowd to see what's happening to his roof. His house is being unroofed, and all of a sudden, massive chaos, and Jesus, I could just picture just standing there smiling. He loves it, and right in the middle of all this, this paralyzed guy is being lowered down, like Tom Cruise in a spy movie, you know? <laughs> Here, hello, and there he is, and there's just total chaos. They dig a hole, they lower the man through it, and, and what does it say? When Jesus saw what? He saw their faith. He saw their faith. So think about this. Faith is something you see. He saw their faith. So we think of faith as this sort of like inter, inner mental feeling of certainty about something. You know, I'm feeling my faith. But faith for Jesus is something you actually take note of. It causes you to act in a certain way. It's the difference between agreeing with a bunch of I believe statements in your head versus inhabiting a world where you actually act like those I believe statements were true. And some of those statements are pretty outlandish things to believe. So Jesus, he sees their faith. And this is fascinating. In the the Greek, there's these couple of words. I know most of you are like, okay, here we go. Um, Stay with me while I nerd out for a second. In the Greek, there's these two words. pistis and pisteo, and you got to be careful when you say that. But these are the words, the Greek words for uh, faith or belief or trust. And uh, what we do is we intellectualize faith and belief and trust, and we make them inward. So we have this inward thing. But to the Hebrews, to the people who would be watching and hearing this, faith is something you saw. So if I said, I love my wife, and, um, but I was abusive towards her, and all I did was belittle her and yell at her, and I never put her first. I was always aggravated and upset, and I was yelling at her. Did, would it matter to you if I said, I love my wife? No. no. Why? Because it doesn't matter what I'm saying, right? Uh, it, it, doesn't, it wouldn't even matter if I sang songs of love to her. Like saying, I, you know, I love you, Mel, and I lift my voice. You know, sing songs to Mel. If, if, if I'm also being in every other way hateful towards her, it wouldn't matter. And just a little secret between you and me. This is something I actually had to learn in our marriage. We've been, this summer we'll be married 25 years. And it took me a long time to like maybe a week ago uh, to learn. You know, hopefully a little earlier than that, but... But uh, I'm kind of a words person. You might not have guessed that. Uh, so I, I like to say I love you. And uh, I, you know, I tell her I love her a lot. And I, I, like for the first years of our marriage, I thought like I was, I was being really, you know, something pretty amazing because of how much I said I love you. You know, and she had to like say one time, like do something around the house. 
Like, do something to show me you love me because I'm not seeing it. And I thought, man, I say it so good. And I like write little poems. And I mean, no, it didn't matter anything. And I would also be like needy in that way. I'd be like, you know, I haven't heard you say you love me in a while. You know, she's like, I did a thousand acts of love for you this week, you know. And so I had to learn like just words aren't enough. That isn't what is, you know, if that's not your love language. Um, it's my love language. You can tell me you love me, you just make my whole week. But anyway, but that's not enough. That's not really, really love. And so, and, and when it comes to faith in the church, what's super kind of concerning to me is I see, I see not our, just in our church, but churches, um, they're filled with people who, because they say they love God and they sing they love God. They, they say it and they sing it. They're absolutely convinced that they can live however they want to and call that following Jesus, right? Because they're worshiping the right, with the right words. And I just want to hold out the possibility that following Jesus, the, that King Jesus actually summons us to follow in his footsteps. To follow Jesus means walk in his footsteps, not just kind of mentally assent to some facts. Because even demons do that. And I think we could do better than demons. Um, I, you know, I was looking at Jesus. Uh, I was looking at, like, reading the Gospels. You notice he doesn't do what my mistake was. He, he doesn't fall for that mistake. He doesn't go around talking about how much he loves God the Father. Like, I was shocked. I was reading, like, how many times did Jesus say, you know, like, every day, guys, have I mentioned today how much I love the Father? Well, I can't find that. He never talks about how much he loves the Father. What he does talk about is I'm obeying the Father. I'm walking in the ways the Father has set before me. I'm doing the things that he's shown me to do. I'm walking in his will, right? Immensely more powerful vision of love than Jesus talking about, look how much I love the Father. You know, it's just, I don't know, it meant something to me. Uh, Where were we? So Jesus sees their faith. Oh, and then all, of all the things, look what he says. Uh, it's so weird to me. He says to the paralyzed man, what? Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're the paralyzed guy, you're hanging in the air like Tom Cruise. Hello. And Jesus says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Is that what you were hoping for? Right? No. He's like, I know how to get my sins forgiven. I go to the temple, I make a sacrifice, there's a blessing pronounced, and I'm saved, and I'm forgiven, right? All's forgiven. The sacrifice is made, you know, and, and so forgiveness is pronounced. I'm not here for forgiveness. I'm here to walk. But Jesus knows that he is making this pretty blasphemous statement by saying, I forgive your sins, because Galilean peasants didn't go around forgiving sins unless there was a sacrifice and a priest in a temple involved. And so he's like, oh yeah, your sins are forgiven. And then uh, verse 6, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. If anyone ever says, by the way, uh, hey, Jesus never claimed to be God, he sure did. He actually did claim to be God. Uh, Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he says, I'll just summarize this. He says, okay, listen, just so you know, that I have the authority to do things that you can't see, which is forgiving sins. I'll do something that you can see, which is healing him. And I tell you, he says to the man, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Okay, 
So the point of this is simply this. What does faith look like in the Gospels? Uh, Well, faith is something you can see. And just like love is something you can see, it's something you can witness, it's not just an inner confidence in the truth of Jesus, although that's part of it, but far too often, I think we settle for that. We settle for trying, trying to just achieve that awesome level of personal confidence. Okay, let's go to Mark chapter 5. I know I hear you crying out for one more example in your hearts, and uh, maybe, maybe a couple of Greek words. I hear it. You're saying, Scott, we need another example. It's more Greek. This is glorious. Yes, okay. Oh, I'm ahead of schedule. We have so much time. Okay. How are you guys doing? You okay? Are you, are you bored? You all right? Okay. Here we go. Like you would tell me. Uh, let me see. I remember a moment in my life. Let me tell you about this. When um, Melissa and I, uh, we, were, we just moved back from Austin where we went to college. We, we got our degrees. We moved back here and uh, we, start, we joined the ministry here at this church. My dad's the founding pastor. And so we started working at the church. And soon after that, we started, uh, her and I started a, a college ministry to kind of the youngish adults. And, um, and we, these, these were just precious people. They wanted to be discipled. Small group of people really wanted to be discipled, wanted to live lives worthy of Christ. It's just a beautiful group of people. And, um, and it was very humbling and very exciting as we stepped into this. Uh, and I, I have to say, I felt way under-equipped to like teach all the scripture, you know, what scripture says about discipleship. Uh, I didn't have a seminary degree. I got my degree in English and business, like, which doesn't really help you teach the Bible. Um, so, so, so what I did is I, I, I crash coursed in books on discipleship, right? Just started reading everything I could get on discipleship. And that's a good, that's a good thing to do. If, you know, if you're g- going to go into ministry, you want to learn about discipleship. I started reading books on the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, in the, the life of Jesus. Just started consuming all this information. And it was interesting. One day I was praying, and I just sensed the Holy Spirit ask me point blank, Scott, when is the last time you read any of these biographies of Jesus? Just front to, front to back. Not like to prepare for a sermon, but just for fun. Just because you were so compelled by the person of Jesus, you just wanted to read actually his words. Not studying for a sermon, but because you found the person of Jesus so compelling. And not reading a book about the Gospels, but the Gospels themselves and just let the Spirit of God speak through the Scriptures to you. And I gotta say, I was really shook. I really was, and, and quite frankly, embarrassed. Um, because here I am, you know, I was teaching this weekly Bible study and trying to be some sort of, you know, mentored to, to these kids. And the more I would read the actual words of Jesus themselves, the more I realized that I had followed the Christianity thing. I understood Christianity pretty good, but the Gospels, I, I, I was just, I realized I was just living out little bits and pieces. I was living out this like flannel graph version of Christianity, and what was shocking is I began to do what I felt the Spirit saying, is just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I didn't even bother with anything else. Just start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over. It became readily apparent that there were some big things that were being left out of the, the meta-narrative being taught 
in much of the church today. Not this church, but, you know, church. I'm talking about the church, right? And it was such a pivotal moment for me because uh, you begin to realize, oh my goodness. I mean, if, if good theology is all that's required, then demons have that, right? They have the best theology in the Gospels. So theology is important, but then it's something else. And what is that other thing? It's faith. What does faith look like? All right, last example here. Let's look at Mark chapter 5. In verse 24, it says, a large crowd followed Jesus and pressed around him. There was a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, Levitical law, you know, Levitical law meant that she was, because of this, she was perpetually unclean. Uh, the condition she had meant she couldn't, like, be around people. She had to declare herself if she walked outside. Anything she touched was considered spiritually unclean. Anything she sat on was unclean. She could not go to temple. She couldn't sh- show up at church. Um, she couldn't go to the synagogue. She was absolutely excluded from common life of Israel. So she's not part of the culture at all, the community. There's no community for her. And, and most likely, some of the uh, scholars point out that she was probably stigmatized because it was thought that this sort of bleeding was the consequence of sexual sin. And so this is a heartbreaking story for her for 12 years. In verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, spent all she had, and yet instead of getting better, she got worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up to him behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she had thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, friends, we just read in that other story how Jesus is always jam-packed with people, right? He's got people all around him. And the, the boldness, you know, the, what's that word? Chutzpah of this woman to, uh, to press through the crowd, defiling everybody she's ta- touching according to their laws, their culture. I mean, let's not gloss over that. She's not just being courageous. She is now, uh, she's kind of reached the level of desperation where she's no longer afraid to inconvenience other people right? And, and so then to touch the hem of Jesus, which by the way makes him unclean too, right? Like chutzpah is the only word that can describe that. If you don't know the word, that means like an obnoxious boldness. And so she fights through the crowd, touches the hem of his robe in 23 and 29. It says immediately her bleeding stopped, praise the Lord. And at once Jesus realized something's happened. He's looking around. He says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, dude, really? Everybody, ev- literally everybody has touched you. But Jesus looked around him to see who had done it, and then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembled with fear. I mean, can you just imagine? Now, why is she afraid? Because here's this pretty famous rabbi that she has just defiled, and he looks at her, and he says, what? Daughter. Daughter. He calls her daughter, which, oh my goodness, this this is not just physical healing. This is like restoration for the whole community of Israel. He's talking here, right here, daughter. And he says, daughter, your what has healed you? Your faith. Not your perfect theology, right? Not your great knowledge. It didn't say she spent all her time like thumbing through the Bible all day. It's because he saw her faith. Why? Because she fought through, she weaved her way through, touched everything in sight at the risk of great social shame. And you see this pattern over and over in the Gospels. The, the woman that anoints Jesus' feet um, at, a dinner, uh, at a dinner party, right? She was the scandalous woman and in front of all the religious leaders. And Jesus looks at her and says, what? Your faith has healed you. 
And again, look what he doesn't say. He doesn't mean by this that they were perfect people. He doesn't insinuate they were perfect. It doesn't, he never says like they had everything nailed down. Just right. There's no indication Jesus ever said, man, your theology and your doctrine is so spot on. I want to heal you right now. Right? You believe all the right set of creeds. Gold star. He never says that. Nor does he ever say, look, here's a person who has no sin in their life. They're as perfect as I am. No. It's their what? Their faith. Their complete and utter trust in him. Just that humble, shameless trust, that faith that's so outrageous, so innocent, they're not even self-aware enough to behave responsibly. They're tearing roofs off other people's houses. That's faith. I want to finish by asking this question. What kind of world do we inhabit if you believe that virgins can give birth and dead people can come back to life. Like, if you believe that, you fundamentally live in a different world, right? Than like the average Joe. So our faith, the faith that we are invited into, is one that should compel us to act as if those things are actually true. Those things are true. That's the invitation. And certainly not to do it perfectly. That's not... That's not required. I mean, one of my favorite scenes uh, in the, one of my favorite stories of the Gospels is where this man had a child who's possessed by a demon being thrown into the fire. And he looks at Jesus and he's like, Jesus, if you can help, please do something. And Jesus is like, if, if really? And the man says, I believe Jesus, help me in my unbelief. And Jesus heals the man's son. Because for some of us, I think there's actually, that's actually where we're at. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And it's a great comfort to the unbelieving, believing segment in the room that Jesus is not looking for any pretending. He's not looking at you to pretend that you believe. Bare honesty reflects what? Reflects trust in the person, right? If you're in a relationship with a person, your spouse or or a friend or something like that, and you're going to be very, very honest with that person about your doubts, your fears, your feelings, you have to trust that person. Otherwise, you're not going to be honest, right? You're not going to be honest. If you don't trust the other person, what do you do? You lie. You pretend. You don't dare speak the truth beneath the surface because they might reject you. And this is somebody who won't reject you. You could speak the absolute honest truth to this person. They will not reject you. And if you're here and you're hearing about faith and it's like, man, I just don't have it. Or my faith is kind of faltering or, you know, I don't know, I'm deconstructing or whatever you're, you know, or I don't know if I buy all of this. Then this whole thing I'm telling you is for you this whole thing. Jesus sets the table for you because he's around those people all the time. These are the people that he's around. In fact, it was the people who were like so sure of themselves and really self-righteous in all their answers. Those are the ones that he's concerned about. 
right? Jesus expresses that, and, and those are the ones that need to be challenged with the idea that following Jesus isn't just knowing more information, and it's not just having all of your systematic theology airtight, right? How many, how many more Bible studies do we need to hear His words to love your enemy, to love your neighbor, to love the stranger, and to love the foreigner, to crucify the greedy cravings of our flesh before we do it? Do we need another Bible study to parse that out? And so following Jesus just turns out, turns out to be really simple. You encounter Jesus, and you say, I, I want to live like that. And I may not be able to do it perfectly, but that's what I want. That's, that's the path I want to start walking. And you begin to pattern your life with the help of the Holy Spirit and in community. I can't stress those two things enough. The Holy Spirit in community to do the things that Jesus did. To do the things He did. Like, just like you would if you were going to learn tennis or, or cooking or geometry or any of those other things. You just start doing the things that the teacher says to do. And so for those of you who have like loads of questions and you're just like, man, I don't know, this, this idea of Jesus, I, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. That is so compelling to me. And as we close in prayer, maybe what you need to learn to accept is that Jesus has accepted you. Maybe you just need to learn to accept that Jesus has accepted you. Amen. Right now, as is, even before you've got all your questions answered. Maybe for others of us, and this is important, guys, um, we've been in church for so long that it's only the new information or the, the, the like, provocative hot take uh, that really gets us interested. It's only when we hear a cool sermon point that maybe we've never heard before that we're like, oh, that was great. Um, and maybe the invitation for us at that point, is to actually just begin to practice some of the stuff that we have been sitting on for years. The stuff we already know. We're just not living it out. We already know it. We're just not living it out. Maybe for us, it's like, okay, Lord, I don't need to know more. I just need to start walking and following. I just need to, I need to drop these fishing nets that I've been holding on to and become the disciple you've invited me to be. At some point, those disciples dropped the nets and followed. So I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're at, but the table of the Lord is always open. And, and you know, God's got, Jesus has a seat right next to him for you. It's there for all of us, whether you buy into this fully or not, whether you have doubts or not, whether you have questions or not. This is the place where you come to be reminded of who Jesus is and how much he loves you. Who he is and how much he loves you. This is, we said it last week, this is new creation space. Which means there's no competition. We're not keeping score. There's no condemnation against those who are f less far along in your, your journey than other people. Jesus just invites you to come with him, to step out in faith, and trust him all along the way, and trust Him to reveal the things that you need to know as you go along. He will. Amen? Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Hallelujah. Father, I thank you, Lord. As we read this, 
Lord, you know I resonate with this guy. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief, my confusion. God, I don't want to settle for just being chock full of information, or I definitely don't want to fear what will happen if I don't admit that I don't have all the answers. I really want to know you, Lord. I want to follow you. I'm so compelled by your person, Father. So, Lord Jesus, I thank you. I pray, God, you would stir in us a hunger and a thirst to be more like you, to walk more like you, to talk more like you. Lord, we are awestruck that you would choose us as followers, that you would put that much faith in our potential to believe that we can actually become what you've already proclaimed us to be. Holy Spirit, speak to us, each person in this moment, because we are listening. In the name of the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet today? Our prayer partners are coming forward. I want to give you an invitation right now for two things. Number one, if you have any prayer requests, anything you need someone to pray with you about, come forward and let them pray with you. These guys can pray whatever, whatever it is, a, a healing or a financial need or a relational need or a spiritual need, something you're struggling with. Uh, they would love to pray with you. And uh, these are just precious people. They're people of faith and they keep it very confidential. You don't need to worry about any of that. And then the other thing is if today you want to take that step, Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus, or maybe you have a long time ago, but you're kind of far from him because you've been wrestling with those things. You've been, man, I know what it is to, to wrestle with those questions. Yeah, but the whatabouts, but the whatabouts. And maybe Jesus to you is just saying, we'll deal with all that. That's okay that you have those. Why don't you come forward and let's just start a relationship. Let's just have a relationship because Jesus wants above all things to just reveal more of himself to you. And so if that's you, I invite you to come forward and let these guys pray with you about that. And they would love to lead you in just that next right step. You don't have to have all the answers. He's got the next right step for you and he'll reveal it to you as you go along. Amen. Praise God. Uh, I thank you so much for your patience today. And my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and just pour out his mercy to you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Thank you. Amen.